welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. Migration policymakers tend to portray the migrant smuggler as their main enemy. Not only do these smugglers help facilitate irregular migration, but they also are seen as exploitative of the people they are helping. But who are migrant smugglers and what do they actually do? To help answer these questions, I talked to Dr. Gabriela Sanchez, Research Fellow at the Migration Policy Centre at the European University Institute. Gabriela Sanchez is an expert on migrant smuggling, but also on the US-Mexico border, so this episode will cover details of that particular border area as well. So first, I asked Gabriela to explain who a typical migrant smuggler is. So I think we the hyper-visibility of migration has also led us to have this very clear, very defined notion of who the smuggler is. And that persona has been highly racialized in gender, right? We typically think of somebody who is a male, um, primarily from the global south, somebody with with dark skin that is out there, right, exploiting people. Um, And... The work that we have been carrying out at the MPC and that, you know, that is part of my research, has been part of my research over the years, tries to shed light on, you know, some of this very simplistic characterization. So smuggling facilitators tend to be completely ordinary people. Um, We have to keep in mind the term smuggling is a legal term, so it really doesn't reflect the dynamics, the, the underground dynamics of migrants. Um, the people who facilitate migrant journeys tend to be, um, we have to, I, I don't, many times I don't really like to talk about a specific profile, but if we had to give a, a set of specific characteristics, we would say that migrant facilitators are uh, men and women of all ages. My current project is actually looking into children and teenagers who participate in the market. People who live along the migrant trail and who have very good connections and very good understandings of their communities. They um, usually work um, for for a fee and they do it for profit. These profits, however, are not very large. Again, once again, compared to the numbers that you're going to see thrown around by organizations. Most of the people who participate do so to supplement their salaries, their wages from the mainstream economy. And they have little, if at all, ties to organized crime. So they are pretty much, if we want to put them in more neoliberal terms, uh, independent contractors, Mm -hmm. people who have loose affiliations with one another and who come together to provide a specific segments of migrant journeys. Right, that's um, quite interesting what you said about profits, because you're right, we, we see in the media, especially these kind of in, incredible numbers that people pay to uh, to be smuggled, especially to Europe, I suppose. So is it, is it, um, is there quite a big difference between different regions of how much um, profit you can make, uh, or does it depend on where you are in the kind of chain or how does that mm-hmm. work well first of all it's especially when we come when we talk about hyper visible practices as migrant smuggling you know that which has 
become ubiquitous. We mm. see them everywhere. And numbers are thrown around to create the sense of urgency or quote-unquote crisis. And regardless of what part of the, of the world you're in, um, and I have carried out work along the U.S.-Mexico border, North Africa, the Middle East, and Australia, and more, you know, more recently uh, here in Europe, the numbers that are thrown around tend to suggest this, um, that they are once again massive. They intend to communicate the sense that migrants have, have to have access to a lot of money and that smugglers are making a lot of money. And I always warn policymakers about looking at the amount that people are paying. And the reason for that is that that fee is really not reflective of on-the-ground dynamics. What we have seen when it comes to the organization of mm, these journeys is that most facilitators operate on kind of pay-as-you-go operations. So those numbers that you see about it being $5,000, $10,000, $20,000, $60,000 for migrants coming all the way from China and into Canada or the United States mm, are usually as estimates that are derived from what migrants start paying along the way. So they may pay $2,000, $3,000 to get a plane ticket, another $2,000 for a passport. A specific facilitator may request two or $3,000 to bribe other, um, other or their, um, to bribe the authorities. So at the end, this money kind of adds up. Mm. But thank God to claim that um, this is that migrants have access to this amount of money up front um, is once again not really reflective of how it how it happens. Now that is on the side of the migrants. When it comes to the smuggling facilitators themselves, once again this fee does not go to a single person. To give you an idea, um, along the U.S.-Mexico border, when I carried out the um, what was my doctoral. In, research on the dynamics of the local organizations, um, some of the fees were as low as some of the compensation that some of the facilitators were receiving was as low as $50 per person. The um, income per month for women was at about $250 per month compared to anywhere between $500 and $800 per month for a man. So you also see gender um, differences when it comes to the level of compensation. Most of the money that is generated by smuggling fees or through smuggling fees gets immediately recirculated into the local economy. Once again, because you're talking about facilitators who live along, along the migrant trail and who have immediate needs. So as soon as they get paid, and for them to get paid, it may take days or weeks, they spend the money. So, and once again, we are looking at, we're not talking about transnational criminal organizations per se, but individual people. So when you ask the facilitators, what do you spend your money on? They will tell you, oh, it went straight into rent. I was behind on uh, a car payment or, you know, I, I have a sick child and he or she needed medication. So this notion of the profit and the numbers that get thrown around in media and policy are, are intended to have the level of appeal, to generate concern over, over profit and over the scope and the extent of the quote-unquote criminal operation. 
But when it comes to how smuggling facilitators use their, their money, you know, we have a very different story. Um, I was going to ask you a bit more specifically about the U.S.-Mexico border, which is your expertise. Uh, but just before we um, talk about the um, kind of smuggling or facilitation there, I just wonder if you could give a bit of background of the actual border crossing. So, like, who are the people who are trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border and why is it such a dangerous crossing to make? When we talk about border crossings along the U.S.-Mexico border, we need to keep in mind that the number of apprehensions has reached record lows. The numbers that we are witnessing at the present moment echo those of the 1970s. So there's really not a lot of people crossing uh, or being apprehended along the U.S.-Mexico border anymore. There are different reasons for that. One is indeed um, border enforcement. Another one is the um, migration-related practices on the part of the U.S. government. It's also the externalization of borders that we're witnessing in the southern border with Mexico. Another factor is the fact that Mexican people, Mexican nationals, are no longer migrating at the same level that they used to a few generations ago. So, and this combined with new populations, new um, groups of migrants that are attempting to to cross the U.S.-Mexico border have changed the the makeup. What makes it dangerous? Mm, That is also a very, will require a very complex um, answer, but I think in the, the short version of this would be, once again, border enforcement and controls, which have restricted and redirected the flow of migrants across the border. Back um, during the, um, the years 2000 and 2010, the U.S. state of Arizona was the main point of entry for irregular migrants. Um, currently, that flow has shifted to South Texas, which is a region on the, along the Gulf, um, Gulf of Mexico. And that is also the route that has been preferred, if we want to call it, by Central American migrants because it is the closest one to the United States. Both regions have very extreme environmental challenges. The the Arizona desert, of course, the the extreme climate, and and also along the, the... in South Texas, what we're also witnessing is the role of, of climate and the environment, and environmental exposure as one of the leading causes for death among the migrants. Many times, again, the smugglers are blamed for um, the violence that, that migrants may endure. But here, once again, we have to think that the redistribution and the very practices of enforcing the border have been behind the redirection of flows along the border. So in what sense um, have the migrant sort of demographic changed? You mentioned that it's different people or different, are they people from different regions or different countries? Correct. So once again, migration from Mexico has decreased. So right now there's, once again, not not that many people from Mexico migrating anymore. um, Over the past few years, 
Central American migrants have been the most representative nationalities in, when it comes to the official apprehension statistics from U.S. immigration enforcement. Another significant um, wave of migration, if we want to call it, has been the one involving Haitian migrants. There's large groups of them along the U.S.-Mexico border with in the city of Tijuana, which is closer to it's you know to the south of California. Um, across Mexico, because when we talk about the U.S.-Mexico border, we have of course to talk about some of the dynamics in Mexico. There's also um, the we also have also witnessed increased visibility of extracontinental migrants, so people from primarily from West Africa and the Middle East. The, um, some of the conditions in South America, especially the um, the case of in the case of Venezuela, we have also seen an inflow of migrants from Venezuela. In this case, people who are fleeing some of those conditions and in coming into Mexico. And Mexico has in fact become is has transitioned from being a migrant generating country to a, a migrant destination country. The applications for asylum have increased exponentially as well, and this is once again a reflection of the external of the externalization of borders. You know, um, um, very specific piece of policy called Plan Frontera Sur, which has led to the to an increase in the number of Central American migrants who are apprehended in Mexico. What specifically is that policy doing? Mm, Plan Frontera Sur is, and here I'm going to be give you a very broad definition of what it has done, but it is a um, U.S. funded or U.S. supported attempt to control some of the migration from South America, and it has given financial resources to the Mexican government to implement. Mm, migration barriers, primarily along the Guatemala-Mexico border. And this has allowed for the Mexican government to, Mexican immigration authorities, to increase their visibility, and which has also resulted in larger number of apprehensions involving primarily Central American migrants. This has also, of course, carried out or, or has other implications on migrant safety. In order to avoid the checkpoints, migrants are going or opting for riskier routes that on many occasions put them at, in contact with um, other criminal actors, you know, uh, members of drug trafficking organizations, um, petty thieves, um, and also, of course, the, the Mexican authorities, including the authorities from the Mexican immigration system. Right. So that was going to be um, my next question about the kind of scale of migrant smuggling along the U.S.-Mexico border, and if there is anything in particular, any particular policies then that kind of impacted um, this. But I don't know if you want to also answer the next question right at the same time, which was about the relation between migrant smuggling and um, and drug trafficking, um, which is I think also what a lot of people just have in there minds when they think about that specific border? Mm -hmm. mm, I'll answer the first part of your, your yeah, question. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> again, I could talk about the, the convergence. Yeah. But um, 
I think once again that we have to be very careful when it comes to our ability to estimate how many people are being smuggled. I once again I often warn policymakers or some of the um, paragovernmental organizations about making calculations that are not necessarily reflective of the practices on the ground. We don't have numbers when it comes to the number of smuggled migrants. Mm -hmm. And for several reasons, one, the fact that it is an illicit activity. Second one, I don't think, I don't really, I honestly do not believe that law enforcement wants to necessarily report or show how many their success, right, <laughs> when it comes at, at um, reporting how many smugglers they have actually apprehended. Yeah. Um, along the U.S.-Mexico border, however, we have a very good source of um, data when it comes to convictions uh, that are related to um, migrant smuggling facilitation. This comes from the U.S. Sentencing Commission, and they reflect that since I believe they have statistics that go back to 2013. So over the last five years, about 2,500 people have been prosecuted and convicted at the federal level for smuggling facilitation. And the majority of these convictions involve people who live along the U.S.-Mexico border. About 25% of the people are women. This also shows an increase on the participation of either the participation of women or the criminalization of the roles of women in smuggling facilitation. This is, um, this statistics are, are again very useful in when uh, showing the fact that most people who are involved in the facilitation of border crossings or irregular migration are local people, people who live within their own communities and who benefit to a degree, we want to call it a benefit, from that knowledge. And who are, once again, pretty much just trying to supplement an income and also to buffer, in a sense, the marginalization that they face living along the U.S.-Mexico border. And here I'm mostly also referring to people on the American side of the U.S.-Mexico border, which is reported according to also official data the place where the communities with the lowest levels of, of income and the highest levels of, of poverty in the country live. So that will be you know, the first part of the question. And as you mentioned, there has been a lot of um, noise. Once again, I think one that is another one of the biggest myths that is connected to migrant smuggling concerning the role of drug trafficking organizations in um, and the facilitation of, of border crossings. Again, this is a very, mm, I am going to say it, it's, a, it's a topic that generates a lot of attention and in which um, as academics, we often disagree. Many academics claim that drug trafficking organizations have taken over the market of migrant smuggling, that there's a very um, clear narcoization, if we want to call it, of the of, of border crossing practices. And through our work, and this is work that I have carried out with um, Sheldon Zhang from the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, our data shows that rather than convergence, what we're seeing is a proliferation of actors 
So that model of the hierarchy or the network that is very prevalent in the mindset of, of law enforcement and policymakers and also the media is again not reflective of the conditions on the ground. We see how migrants many times opt to participate in drug trafficking activities in order to make additional income that would allow them to pay the smugglers. We also see um, some instances of um, forced recruitment. Um, and many times we just, what we have been able to document is that this interactions that take place between migrant smuggling facilitators and drug trafficking actors are the result of both markets sharing the same territory, the same geography. Mm -hmm. But that should not be interpreted as an example of convergence. Mm -hmm. Both markets have different goals. They transport different merchandise. Uh, and one of the one of the practices that is often um, given as an example of this convergence, right, is the, the fact that more migrants are being asked to carry drugs across the border. When you talk to some of the migrant smuggling facilitators, they will tell you that some of these practices have to do um, with strategies to get bigger groups across, mm -hmm. bigger groups of migrants across in using migrants who have paid very little money or who have actually no no funds, who have no money to pay for the crossings as decoys. So this this also shows some of the um, how disposable mm -hmm. the the lives and the, um, the the lives of some migrants are mm -hmm. that they are, that they can be um, that they are seen as people who can be you know, actually used to once again to distract law enforcement so that other markets can operate. But once again, this this does this should not be interpreted as a structural convergence. More um, than anything, what we see is the series of interactions, some of them voluntary, others that arise from the, the very pressures of the, the attempts or the hopes to cross the border at a time when channels to cross it regularly or, or, on, or legally, if you want to call it, continue to decrease. Mm. What, I was just thinking now when you were um, saying that, like, obviously you've talked about very different... Uh, different uh, people engaging in the smuggling, so people on both sides of the borders, for example. But what do they actually do? You know, it might sound a bit <laughs> silly, but you know, what is their role actually? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is another you know, very, very important factor to to unmask or to you know, and to to showcase. Um, migrant smuggling facilitators actually perform very specific tasks. We usually think of a smuggler as a, and I think that once again, the official narratives, mainstream narratives of smuggling convey this notion that the smuggler is behind entire transit, right? Mm -hmm. From the time a person leaves his or her home until the, the place of his or her destination. And it's actually not that easy. <laughs> um, border enforcement and militarization along you know, around the world has also impacted the organization of smuggling facilitation. Most facilitators provide and execute a very specific task along the way. So one person may guide you 
longer segment. Another one may pick you up from you know point A and deliver you or, or drop you off at point B. Mm, many times we see women um, providing housing, providing care, um, feeding people you know, along the way, delivering water and food to um, safe houses or locations where migrants are wait for um, to be picked up. Um, other facilitators may actually be more in charge of collecting fees or recruiting migrants. So as you see, everybody performs a specific task. And so everybody gets paid for that individually and separately. There may be, sometimes there are coordinators, people who may collect all of these fees and who then in turn get, get a fee themselves, but they are then they, they are in charge of making all of these payments, you know, to, to the to the specific facilitators. So once again, you don't see um, one person behind the entire operation but multiple people who are loosely connected with one another coming together as needed. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing I was going to ask you, more of a general question, is that, um, well, we, we read a lot about, and, and it seems to be the case that sometimes some migrant smugglers really do engage in exploitation of, um, of migrants, and it can be... Um, quite sort of horrible conditions and and put people at a considerable risk so you know if you are a policymaker in a state where you actually want to keep your borders relatively closed is there any way that you can actually combat that sort of exploitation or is it just the case that well unless you actually create ways for people to migrate you're always going to um, put people at risk Mm -hmm. Let me once again kind of like break down the, the question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, was, I'm sorry? No, I was just basically thinking, you know, if if you want to keep your borders closed, but you also don't want people to get ex exploited by smugglers, is there anything that you can do? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think one another one of the myths that is very much connected to smuggling is the fact that borders at some point in the past were sealed or were protected. Borders are permeable. They have always been. So the solution, especially on the, you know, along the US-Mexico border and with the current administration, <laughs> that borders, there was a time, there was once, you know, that once upon a time, the border was safe, is uh, a myth. People on both sides of the border and along borders in general around the world have found ways to be in touch with one another despite regulations, despite restrictions when it comes to to primarily state-motivated reasons or controls. So that notion of the perfectly secure border is a myth that, that has really never, we have never witnessed that in the story of, of borders. At the same time, borders are intended you know to to create or the notion of border and the images of course that we have seen of the the u.s mexico border as once safe or once protected also communicate this this notion that it needs to be re uh, reprotected right like re, resealed when again that has never been the case so we need to keep that in mind the other one is once again the focus on the smuggler mm -hmm. smugglers do not um, do not appear on a, you know, 
vacuum. You know? They they don't just pop up like mushrooms. And this is something <laughs> that I that I say you know quite often. Um, along the U.S.-Mexico border, we have evidence of smuggling practices dating back to the late 1800s, involving Chinese migrants who had been expelled under um, U.S. immigration law at the time. <laughs> And they were primarily being smuggled across um, um, the U.S.-Mexico border with California and also California, Arizona and segments of Texas. Um, and in the 1930s, there is also very strong evidence of smuggling activity taking place involving American recruiters who were trying to avoid and circumvent some of the restrictions that were placed into the hiring of Mexican migrants, primarily Mexican uh, male Mexican migrants, who were coming into the States. So we see this very historically clear connection of smuggling you know, related to to um, res restrictions that are imposed by the, the American government. In that sense, smugglers do not just appear. They, they are not just there. They are the result of enforcement policy. Um, to talk about exploitation when it comes to, to smuggling facilitation is also a very subjective um, understanding. By this, I am not denying the fact that many migrants do face violence in, at the hands of smugglers, the same way they face it in, at a different degree of intensity that they face it from law enforcement officials on both sides of the border mm -hmm. um, by ordinary citizens. We have very clear examples of victimization of migrants by, you know, by, by people in the communities that they travel through, the military. Mm -hmm. So there's multiple actors that play a role in inflicting mm, you know, violence against migrants. So it, it is not just the, the smuggling facilitator. Smuggling facilitators, however, do not have public relations teams, right, that can go and say, no, we're doing this to protect them, we're doing this to keep it safe. Um, so in that sense, um, some of the more critical work on, on smuggling calls for that um, for, for some of those understandings, the fact that it is not just the smuggler or the smuggling facilitator and that violence is, and that some of the, the risks and the precarity that is experienced along the, in, in the context of these journeys is many times understood by, by migrants that you know how 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 aware of the risks that they will face along the way migrants are. That's another story. We have seen that many have very general knowledge of of the risks that are associated with crossing borders, but many times um, try to not necessarily to dismiss the risk. There's a lot of preparation that takes place before you that take place that takes place before you embark on one of these journeys, but. Um, when migrants look back at their journeys, they usually say, you know, I wish I hadn't done this. Um, very, um, another one of the articles that just came out in one publication, the, the special issue that we had on migrant smuggling, shows how migrants would say, I would never recommend my relatives or my friends to come with a smuggler because the journey, not, not necessarily the smuggler, but the journey in itself is so dangerous. Mm. It does not really even come close to what I thought. 
more recent work that we have carried out in the Italian context involving Bangladeshi migrants show a, a very similar um, pattern. Migrants being generally aware of the conditions through their interactions with friends, family members, former migrants, but then becoming aware in the context of their journeys that they, things were not um, as easy as they thought or that they were not going to be able to buffer the risks of um, crime enforcement illness um, also one one concept that is one notion that is usually not very described the emotional impact of these journeys mm -hmm. um, the the psychological impact as well that they have you know at the more effective level um, many migrants are not aware of those complexities so or or think that they are they are very prepared to deal with them or that most of those cases of tragedy and, and death are not going to be, that they are not going to be the ones going through that. So again, it, it is, we have to look beyond the person of the smuggler when it comes to explaining mm, patterns of violence and victimization. Mm. I suppose that's human psychology as well, to downplay the risk when it comes to yourself. Right. Um, <laughs> I don't, don't know if, you, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, but you don't, you don't want to picture yourself, you know, dying or, you are going to be the one who's going to make it. Yeah, it's, yeah, precisely. Right. Also, many many migrants will tell you. I remember from one. Um, I remember one one um, Iranian couple that I interviewed in Melbourne a few years ago, telling me like, "What else? You know, we had lost everything. There was really nothing left for us to lose." So trying for the third time with a smuggler, going on the third attempt. Um, really didn't seem that far-fetched anymore. <laughs> so in trying to, again, trying to understand the conditions from the perspective of migrants and those behind their journeys, you know, is essential when, when we, if, for a more critical understanding of, of, the, of the journeys that they embark upon. Yeah, I, I, have you got time for one more question? Sure. Sure, um, great, because I didn't, I didn't, um, think of asking you this but it's kind of the obvious question so I don't know if you want to say something about the wall <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's another that's another 40 minute you right know. okay <laughs> no, but, um, I you know this these days um, I think it's a mandatory and obligated question <laughs> Um, along the U.S.-Mexico border, we get asked this question pretty much every two and four years, every time a, an election cycle yeah. comes up. Um, and people just, you know, kind of like, um, you know, roll up their eyes going again, the fence, the wall again. And this is because the walls and fences have been part of our history for, for decades. So they are not new. The intensity of policing, the consequences of the wall, you know, are what is at the, you know, at the core of our concerns. The restrictions to go home and see family members, restrictions to to cross the border, um, the ability to to go into cities on the Mexican side or the American side, for that matter, freely, have been part of our everyday lives for, again, for generations. It's very common to see cases of, of intimidation um, against Mexican-American, Mexican migrants you know, along, the, along the border, uh, families separated because of immigration enforcement policies and practices. 
So once again, we need to think beyond the wall. Mm. One one other aspect that I really like to to raise, you know, when I when I talk about the the border, the border is not the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and by this, I am I I say this being very much aware of its militarization, the enforcement, and the pain that has caused to people on both sides of the border and to those who cross it. But um, again, the narrative of of smuggling, the narrative of organized crime. Uh, the narrative of violence very much obscures the um, the resilience, the life, the attempts of the people of the border to have a normal life. Mm. And that is also something that gets forgotten, you know, in the conversations when it, when it comes to the wall, how people along the U.S.-Mexico border, people along borders and fences around the world um, love their communities, have respect for their communities, and are resilient in the face of, of all of these restrictions to their mobility and to their dignity. To find out more about Gabriela Sanchez and her work, such as the special issue mentioned in this episode, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. That was all for this time. Thank you very much for listening.